Hello, welcome to Akbar's Chamber. I'm your host, Niall Green. And in this episode, we're going to be talking about Islam in Southeast Asia. Now, Southeast Asia today includes quite a large number of countries. Malaysia, Thailand, Brunei, the Philippines, Vietnam, and the largest in terms of geography and population is Indonesia. Indonesia is also the country with the largest Muslim population in the world around 230 million in 2021. And in this episode of Akbar's Chamber, we're going to be asking how and when Islam spread to Southeast Asia. We're also going to be looking at the process of how this translation of Islam into an entirely different geographical, cultural and also linguistic environment took place we'll be looking at a period of around a thousand years from the 11th century through to more recent times. And joining me in this conversation is an expert on the region, Professor Peter Riddle. (laughs) Professor Riddle is currently Professorial Research Associate in the the School of Oriental African Studies at the University of London. is also Senior Research Fellow of the Australian College of Theology in Melbourne. He's the author of many books on Southeast Asian Islam and on the translation between Arabic and the Malay languages. And those many books include his Islam and the Malay Indonesian World, Transmission and Responses, that was published by Hearst in 2001. Hello, Peter. Welcome to Akbar's Chamber. Hello, Niall. Thank you very much for having me. Well, today we're going to be talking about Islam in Southeast Asia, that large corner, I suppose one might say, of the planet that includes what are now the modern nation states, or be the thousands of islands that make up Indonesia, Malaysia, Singapore, Brunei, even the Philippines and Vietnam, and some would argue then Myanmar, historical Burma as part of Southeast Asia. And all of these countries, have Muslim populations, of course, even places like Vietnam or Thailand, as well as the obvious places, which I think we'll be spending more time on, such as what are now make up Indonesia and Malaysia. Because although I've framed the place we're talking about as Southeast Asia, we might also think about it as perhaps the, the Malay world. And you'll be telling us what we might mean by Malay as a language, a literature, uh, and whatever else as we go forward. But to start us off, Peter, perhaps let's begin by my asking you to sketch out the place then and the people we'll be looking at, perhaps both before and after the period in which Southeast Asia was converted to Islam. So can you give us a sense then of Southeast Asia before the spread of Islam and then by comparison of Southeast Asia today when Indonesia, at least, has the largest Muslim population of any single nation in the world. Yes, well, a before and after works very well for Southeast Asia. If we if we take a one thousand year time frame, Niall, um, if we cast our minds back 
to 1021 and compare that to 2021, there's actually some quite remarkable changes and differences that are, that are, that are evident. Um, of course, Southeast Asia is broadly divided into the two parts. That's mainland Southeast Asia, covering the nation, some of the nations you mentioned, Myanmar, Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia, Thailand, Peninsula, Malaysia, and island Southeast Asia, uh, Southeast Asia covering Indonesia, uh, Philippines, Brunei, Singapore, and um, the, the, those thousands of islands that you referred to. So a thousand years ago, in 1021, um, the region was characterized by a series of what are often called Indianized states. Indianized meaning states that were the result of dramatic Indian influence in terms of culture and, and religion. Um, in fact, when we look back to, to 1021, we find massive kingdoms in the, in the, the local region. We find a, a kingdom in South Sumatra based in in the, the town of, of Palimban called Sri Vijaya, and that exerted, exerted a dramatic influence in the region. Um, over on mainland Southeast Asia, uh, there was the Khmer Kingdom that was really placing a significant stamp. There was a kingdom of Champa, and all of these kingdoms were, were Hindu-Buddhist. They were either Hindu or Buddhist, or very often a merger of the two. Um, so when we cast our minds back there, what's striking a thousand years ago is that Southeast Asia tended to be Hindu-Buddhist, with populations of animists who followed animist practice, of course. Moving forward a thousand years, what's noticeable is that the uh, Hindu-Buddhist background has been squeezed very much onto mainland Southeast Asia, where we find predominantly Buddhist nations, such as Thailand, um, Cambodia, uh, Myanmar, um, Vietnam, to some extent. And then we find the, uh, the Islamic nations that predominantly Islamic nations, such as Indonesia and Malaysia that you mentioned before, and other nations that have significant Islamic minorities. So today, um, Southeast Asia is divided into predominantly Buddhist nations on the mainland and Islamized nations um, in the islands, or in the case of the Philippines, predominantly Christian, of course. It's a very different, very different scene, quite a fascinating one. And this background is, is important, isn't it? Because although we'll be talking here about about Muslims, as we do in Akbar's chamber, the fact that you've mentioned the presence of earlier Hindu communities, indeed kingdoms and, and Buddhists who survived throughout, particularly as you mentioned, mainland Southeast Asia, this points us back to a much older history before, let's say, 1021, isn't it, in, in previous centuries, going back another millennium, more or less, before then of interactions with South Asia, what we'd think of as historical India, the home of the Hindu and Buddhist faiths then that spread then across the Indian Ocean. Because although we often think of geographies as being the land, it's actually the sea or those connecting seas, the Indian Ocean, that is going to be really important to us. But of course, we'll be looking at, as we move on then, interactions not just with South Asia, historical India, but also with West Asia, with the Middle East, and particularly with the, the Arabian Peninsula. So in a sense, I suppose, and you'll be telling us more about this, the, the rise of Islam is a story of broader connections, I guess, broader maritime, oceanic, and connections across the spaces we now call Asia. So when then, and more importantly, and I hope more interestingly, when and how did Islam spread into these different parts of Southeast Asia? 
Yes, well, look, the spread of Islam was a long uh, process. I, I think of the spread of Islam um, as being in two macro kinds of phases. Um, of course, Islam was established um, during the 600s um, in, in the Middle East, in, in the Arabian Peninsula. <clears throat> and um, with, the, with the death of Muhammad in 632, then um, the Islamic domains expanded through various means. But one of the, one of the things that the early Islamic um, dynasties did was that they looked for connections far afield. And a magnet was always China. So as early as the one of the very early dynasties of Islam, the Umayyad dynasty, which, which you know, occurred three, uh, within 30 years of the death of Muhammad, they, set, they were sending trade ambassadors to China in the 660s, in the 670s. Now, these trade ambassadors going to China, they had two possible routes. They could go overland through the famous Silk Road, or they could go over the seas. And if they went uh, via sea, they then passed down the Straits of Malacca and they touched on Southeast Asia at various points. So in this first phase, what we're finding is um, travellers, ambassadors, traders um, coming from the Middle East, perhaps coming from India as well, stopping off in Southeast Asia. And there was some intermarriage. So in the first phase, we're starting to find um, individual People, individual Muslims, um, appear in Southeast Asia, um, or small small groups of Muslims, but not yet whole Islamic communities or kingdoms. And with history, of course, it's always good to put a, a human face to the statistics, isn't it, to the stories? And one human face is the, the face of Fatima binti Maimoun. Fatima binti Maimoun was a, a Muslim woman who lived and died in Java. She died in 1082. So that's close to my thousand-year time frame. Um, she was Muslim, lived in, uh, lived in East Java. Her tombstone is still available. Her name tells us that she was Muslim with a, the name Fatima. Um, she was obviously the daughter of a Muslim because Binti Maimun means the daughter of Maimun, who was also Muslim by name. So th that's a window into what we're seeing here in this early phase. Individuals who stayed and made a home there um, we find early tombstones in subsequent centuries as well. And we also find um, references in the Chinese court records to Muslims resident in Southeast Asia coming and visiting the Chinese court. So in this phase, we're talking about individuals, um, small groups, perhaps families, or a small community, a small village. But we're not yet talking about big, big Islamic kingdoms. The big Islamic kingdoms come into play around the year 1250 to 1300. And that's when we start finding uh, records of, um, of rulers having converted to Islam. And again, court records are interesting here. Chinese court records tell us, tell us um, give us information about some of these early ruler conversions to Islam, but also traveler tales do too. And the famous Marco Polo um, on his 24 year sojourn in China on the way back to, to Venice, he stopped off in Sumatra and he noticed that the town of Perlak, which is in the north northern tip of Sumatra, it, its ruler was Muslim, the town folk were Muslim, but the people living outside the town were mainly non-Muslim. He called them um, unbelievers. Um, so th that's a window into a process that's underway. The town had become Muslim but just not very far beyond the town. They were not yet Muslim. And we find similar traveller tales. The famous Moroccan traveller, Ibn Battuta, 
he stopped off in uh, Samudra Pasai, which is also on the very northern tip of Sumatra. And he gave a very rich and fascinating testimony of having met the Muslim Sultan, the, 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 pro, the, the protocols that he had to go through in order to meet the Sultan and beyond. So this, from 1300 onwards, we're starting to find Muslim city-states emerge and some great ones existed, such as Malacca in the 1400s. Aceh emerged in the 1500s when Malacca was conquered by the Portuguese. And so that's the process of establishment of Islam. We measure the establishment of, of Islam by the conversion of rulers and by the actual creation of Islamic states, city-states. And they tend to be port city-states because of the role of traders and merchants traveling through. Uh, it's a fascinating period to follow. Um, and once the Europeans came on the scene, then um, we start to find interesting dynamics into the scene as well. Well, that's very fascinating what you said insofar as in particular, the, the, the importance of these often what might seem to many listeners quite distant bits of evidence, whether it's Ibn Battuta, of course, who wrote up his Arabic memoirs when he was back in, in Tangier, more or less, on the, you know, kind of a few miles from Spain, or indeed the Chinese court chronicles. And, uh, and perhaps listeners might be wondering, why do we need to rely upon these, these external sources? And, and, and this presumably is because... Uh, one of the reasons, as I understand it, is, is, is that the, the climate of Southeast Asia isn't particularly kind either to wooden buildings nor even to written materials. Hence the importance, as you mentioned, of these early stone inscriptions, uh, the gravestones that you mentioned of, uh, of Fatih bin Maimoun and others, which themselves some scholars have actually traced even the actual places where the stone is from, haven't they, to actually the actual stone itself, let alone the inscription is testimony these connections, particularly to the Kambay region of, of Gujarat in, in, in India. So Peter, perhaps you can tell us more about some of these city-states that you started, uh, that you mentioned starting to develop from the perhaps the 1300s, 1400s and thereafter. Yes, well, uh, if we take a focus for the, mo for the moment on the pre-colonial period before the arrival of the Europeans, the, the, the key ones really were Samudra Pase, which is on the very tip of northern Sumatra. And um, that was the city that was uh, visited by Ibn Battuta, the Moroccan traveller. Um, a fascinating testimony is provided by him. We have, again, tombstones um, that survived from that particular city-state from its earliest known Muslim ruler. Uh, his name was Malik Usale. Um, he died in 1297. So that's hard evidence of the death of a Muslim sultan in that particular city-state. And interestingly, again, ch turning to Chinese court records, um, they report that he had sent uh, Muslim ambassadors from his uh, court in northern Sumatra off to, off to China. So we're seeing very, very important links here between the early Muslim states of China, uh, of uh, Southeast Asia, and the Chinese court. Um, there's another very interesting um, discovery that was made back about 100 years ago, actually, on the, um, on the east coast of the Malay Peninsula at the city, um, just near the city of Trunganu. Um, for some time, um, worshippers at a local mosque had noticed a stone that was laid in the path and, and, and worshippers used it to put their feet on and to wash their feet as they went into prayers. And after a little time, their curiosity got the better of them and they 
took this stone and looked closely at it, and it turned out to be what's become known as the Trungano inscription, an inscription dating from 1303, testifying to the existence of a Muslim community. So we're around the same period here, early 1300s, a Muslim community in that part of the east coast of Malaysia, um, the Malay Peninsula. And um, the stone gives a whole series of regulations about the establishment of a community, about the laws that they need to follow. And the laws are very closely related to Islamic law. So again, we have an early community there. Um, staying on the Malay Peninsula, we find um, the huge and hugely important um, city-state of Malacca. Malacca was, was a very crucial touch point for travellers, for traders, for diplomats um, coming from India or the Middle East through the Straits of Malacca, as they're called, to China. So they would stop off in Malacca. And around 1414, it appears that the ruler, give or take a few years, because the, that, that early period is a little uncertain, but the, the ruler of Malacca at the time adopted Islam. And when a ruler adopts Islam, then the community tended to adopt Islam. And some of the early literature from that period describes how he became a Muslim. Um, the, the story goes in, in one of the early historical texts from that area that he had a dream that this ship would come from Arabia with a, a Muslim scholar who would uh, recite the, um, something to him and um, he would then become a Muslim. And, and the next day, a ship arrived from the Arabian world. He, re he recited something and he became a Muslim and his, his community followed him. So Malacca became a very important um, uh, early state, a Muslim state in the region. And it then became the catalyst for the Islamization of the Malay Peninsula over the next 100 years. Until in 1511, after it had been a, an Islamic state for about 100 years, uh, the Portuguese arrived and conquered it. And Malacca then became Portuguese Malacca. No longer was it the uh, boiler room for the Islamization of the region. So the, that role then fell to the emerging Sultanate of Aceh back on the northern tip of Sumatra. Um, so again, um, we keep finding like kind of like mushrooms popping up. These is new Islamic sultanates emerge. If one of them gets swallowed up by the arriving European co uh, colonialists, then another one comes up in its place. And then you have a, a tussle going on between the arriving Europeans, be they Portuguese or Dutch, and, and the uh, existing Muslim uh, city-states. Uh, one other point to mention is that it's easy to assume that in these early years, the 1400s, 1500s, 1600s, that there was automatically um, uh, Muslim against Christian conflict. But sometimes strategy determined that a Muslim group would ally with a, a European Christian group against another Muslim group. For example, in 1606, um, Aceh tried to... Um, I'm sorry, uh, Johor, another Muslim sultan on the southern tip of, of Malaya. Johor tried to conquer Malacca to expel the Portuguese. Um, they realised they didn't have the resources to do so, so they turned to the Dutch and said, will you help us do, do it? So the Dutch and the Muslim people of Johor went and besieged Malacca to try and kick out the Portuguese, unsuccessfully as it happened. But in gratitude, the sultan of Johor gave the Dutch admiral a beautiful hand-copied Quran, which was taken back to Holland 
It now sits in the Rotterdam Municipal Library and it's the oldest surviving example of the full Quran from Southeast Asia. And the final point I'll make on this point is to say that that's an example of what you mentioned earlier, the, 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 the local climate tended to deteriorate early um, remnants of Islamic civilization. So the oldest Quran from Southeast Asia is held in a library in, in Holland. And it, it's a, it poses an interesting thought, doesn't it? Because on the one hand, the colonialists are accused of plundering these areas and taking the riches back to Europe. But had they not done so, then we wouldn't have some of these remnants. So that's an interesting, interesting paradox. Indeed. And so far, you've been mentioning as well that the, the various names that I'm picking up on, and uh, they tend to be Arabic names with Al-Malik al-Saleh and so on. He could be a ruler of Syria. I think there might well have been, I think, a ruler, ruler of Syria with that name or a very similar one in the, the Ayyubid period. I mean, basically the, the same kind of same century. And and indeed, throughout Southeast Asia today, whether in Singapore, there are people not only who know Arabic, as indeed people, scholars do throughout the Islamic world, but actually consider themselves Arabs. But one of the, the, the key terms when we're thinking about the region uh, that we'll be, we'll be coming to, of course, is, as I already mentioned, the Malay world. And not only then Arabic and people who think of themselves as Arabs, but this really important Malay language as well. So this is... Uh, another of the, the key developments, isn't it, through the emergence of these states that you've talked about then, is that the patronage of not only, let's say, learning, legal learning, the kind of the courts of these different sultanates who, of course, must know Arabic to be able to interpret Arabic law, and indeed a few specialists who will be able to read the Quran in Arabic, but the development of a, a religious literature and ultimately a, a secular literature in, in the Malay language as well. So I'm hoping we can sort of move towards a sort of a, you know, an understanding of this Malay language, but also as it relates to Arabic as well, Arabic source texts and indeed Arabic terms and the, the Islam that comes then from the Middle East or, or indeed perhaps as we'll touch on perhaps the other um, possible source uh, region for Islam in South Asia being, being India, and particularly West India. And perhaps we can sort of frame our, our move towards Malay and the relationship with Arabic then with, through the idea of translation. Because when we say translation, we can mean both the narrower sense of the word, the narrow sense of translation, let's say, of particular texts. But we can also mean the, the broader sense of the word translation, its original meaning in Latin, in fact, the relocation then of, of one set of ideas and practices from one place, one part of the world to another. So bearing in mind these two narrow meaning of translation, translating a book or ideas or a broader relocation type of translation, can you explain that, how, how Islam was translated then into these different cultural and linguistic environments in Southeast Asia. Yes, well, that, of course, was the challenge, wasn't it? It is the challenge for any, I guess, religious faith that transmits from one cultural setting to another cultural setting. How does it express itself? How does it present itself in a way that's understood by the receiving community? And translation, as you say, translation means many things. 
Um, in the case of Southeast Asia, perhaps we could consider a few of those things. I think, firstly, of translation as, as story. Um, and storytelling is an essential device. It has been an essential device in the, in the expansion and spread of all religions. I, I remember as a child, my mother telling me Bible stories, and that, be, that was how I got my early knowledge about, about Christianity. Um, and the case in, in, in the Islamic world is no different. The, the importance of story and the transmission of, of within a family, of children learning the faith uh, within a community. And so as Islam was slowly um, embraced and adopted in, in the cities of Southeast Asia, especially in the port cities, what we find is that translation of story became an essential means. So we find that some of the great stories, the great epic stories that were that proliferated in India and in the Middle East, they were translated to the local language that people understood, which happened to be Malay in the, in the cities that we're talking about in Aceh, um, in, in Malacca and so forth. And so we find, for example, a, a, a great uh, epic story that goes back to um, you know, much earlier centuries being translated, the, the Hikayat Muhammad Hanafiya, Hikayat meaning epic story, I guess, the great story of Muhammad Hanafiya. Now, uh, Muhammad Hanafiya was the son of the Caliph Ali. Um, he was a half-brother of Hassan and Hussein, the two sons of Ali, so a very important figure. But more importantly, um, he was his reputation was as a, as a great warrior. So... Um, when this story, the story of Muhammad Hanafiya, the great warrior, was translated to Malay, um, the community that's reading it, the new, new Islamic community in Malaya, they're learning about Islamic belief. They're learning about a great Islamic warrior. They're learning about uh, how that Islamic warrior combated others, including non-Muslims as part of jihad, his, his combat with the so-called Franks or, or Christians. So these ideas are being transmitted and, and storytelling was a very important way for uh, filling in the gaps of Islamic understanding of the new Islamic community. Um, and there are many other stories that were translated. Another one was the Hikayat Nabi Wafat, um, which is a story about um, based on um, materials coming from the Middle East, based on the death of Muhammad, how he died, um, what, what the process was, what he said when he died. That was another way of, of telling a story and learning the faith. Um, and, and there are many examples. There's another one called the Hikayat Iskandar Dhulkarnain, which is a story about the Islamic figure of Dhulkarnain, who appears in the 18th chapter of the Quran. Um, considered a prophet in Islam, often associated with Alexander the Great, curiously. Um, but again, a rich story that, that the, the locals used, uh, enjoyed, told, related, and in the process transmitted Islam. So translation of story uh, as story is an interesting way that translation happens. Um, translation as culture um, is related, but... How do you tell a story in a way that the local culture is going to understand? And there are some very interesting um, examples of how adaptations were made so that when, for example, some verses of the Quran were translated into local languages, people would understand it. Let me give you an example. Um, there's a verse in the 12th chapter of the Quran, which concerns the figure of Joseph, Yusuf, famous 
prophet in Islam and, of course, big name in Genesis in, in the Bible as well. Um, in the 17th verse of that story, the story of Joseph, where his brothers take him away from the father and dump him, get dump him down a well, they go back to the father and the Quran says they told the father, in fact, I'll read it, they said, oh, our father, we went racing each other and we left Joseph with our possessions and a wolf ate him. Now, the problem with telling that story in Southeast Asia is that there are no wolves in Southeast Asia. So how do you tell the story? So the translation in Southeast Asia came out as, oh, our father, we went racing about together and we left Joseph with our clothing and old tiger ate him. So that's, that's translation. Your translation is culture. And you get another example in in chapter 18, where the Quran refers to a spring of dark mud, but in the Southeast Asian version, they refer to it as a spring of an unirrigated rice field. So this is translation. This, is, this shows the effort of expressing the new faith in a way that local people will get. And finally, um, another example I could give you, I've got lots of examples, of course, but another example I give you is translation as language, actual that's how we first think of translation, um, the importation of Arabic terms into the Malay language, which was the common language of unification of a very diverse group of people in Southeast Asia, in Ireland, Southeast Asia. Um, the word for news, the Arabic word for news is adopted. Um, the Arabic word for greeting is adopted. Often you find religious terminology is adopted. Many Arabic words exist in Malay, which is a completely different language family. Um, and, and a, a, an example I will give you from my own research, um, this is my PhD research, I, I looked at the very earliest translation of the Quran into, into Malay, and what I found was that the Malay language was quite distinct from the normal Malay language, and that was because that the translators believed that they were dealing with the Arabic of the Quran, which they considered to be God's word, God's exact word, and therefore, as it's God's exact word, they felt that they shouldn't change it. They should avoid changing it as much as they possibly could. So what they did was that they would translate, do a word-for-word -word translation from the Arabic into the Malay, and you end up with this Arabized kind of Malay. And in one verse, I, I just think of as an example, the original Arabic is, uh, consists of five words, but by the time it gets into the Malay, having translated every little element of the Arabic original, it becomes 15 words, highly cluttered language. That's translation. So these are all efforts to, um, to reach the new community that's embracing Islam, um, to, but to transmit what is considered as important from the original, but do it in a way that's understood by the receiving community. There are other, plenty of other examples as well, uh, but it's a fascinating process, this whole concept of translation. And one of the things that's developing through this interaction then between Islam and the various local peoples and indeed the, the court cultures that are emerging then in these sultanates and between Arabic and the, in fact, the, the hundreds of local languages really across Southeast Asia as a whole then is, is the emergence then of, of what we now think of as, as Malay, as a more, of a more standardised language that becomes both a, a lingua franca, a kind of a shared language, as well as um, a high literary language then and a high literature. You've mentioned then these, these hikayats, these epic tales then. And, and of course, there are also these other genres that, that emerge, shair, 
shijar, sajada, which again, like Hikayat, they take Arabic words, the Arabic word for poetry, shayir, the Arabic word for a shajada, a tree, I suppose, but uh, in this case, a genealogy, a genealogical tree, a history text. And the Arabic script gets adopted as a writing system, doesn't it? As well as the many of these kind of terms and not just terms for genres of literature, but all manner of other terms um, as, as well. And uh, and I wonder if you can sort of give us a sense then of this, this emergent literature that's written Malay in the Arabic script. And of course, now the versions of Basu Malayu that are spoken in the national language of Indonesia and, and, and Malaysia, of course, don't have the Arabic script anymore. They're written in Latin script. But there is this then this Arabized, but nonetheless, in a way, very indigenous or very localized or very Southeast Asian as a lingua franca of these various islands, then this Malay literature, Malay Islamic literature emerges. Mm. Yes. Um, one of the interesting challenges with studying uh, Southeast Asian uh, Islamic history is, uh, as I said earlier, the, the evidence suggests that the earliest communities, conversion of rulers happened around 1300 or thereabouts. But the oldest literature we have dates from just around 1600. So we have a 300 year gap there where we don't really have any much, well, barely any literary evidence. We do have some inscriptions and, you know, tombstones and so forth, but the literature only comes from the 1600s. So we have to cast our minds back um, from the evidence that we find to extrapolate from the literary text of 1600 to figure out what was going on in 1300 and 1400 and 1500. And what we can say with a fair amount of confidence is that the process of Islamization in those early centuries, it was gradual. They would have been setting up small Islamic study centers in the different locations in Aceh. These Islamic study centers would have been studying. Um, they would have been studying some of the Quran. They would have been uh, importing some of the writings on the Islamic text done by scholars from India and the Middle East. And the language, of course, was Arabic original, but they had to translate it to, to the language that the locals understood, which the lingua franca was Malay. So they adapted the Arabic, Arabic alphabet. Arabic alphabet's got 24 letters. There are a number of sounds in, in the Malay language that Arabic doesn't have, so they had to add on another five letters. So they ended up with an alphabet of, of, 20, of 29 letters. And so, by 1600, when we have our surviving literature available, we have a, a, you know, an increasing quantity of studies of the Quran, studies of the Hadith, studies of law, of studies of Sufi mysticism, all written in this, um, this script called Jawi script. It's, it's the Malay language in Jawi script going through this process of translation. Um, now, not only was... Um, uh, a, a religion being transmitted, but in the process, a language was being consolidated as a language of communication, Malay, um, three or 400 years before, we can fairly safely assume that Malay in perhaps 1200, 1300 AD, such as it existed, would have been essentially a trade language, a trade language enabling communication between a very diverse set of different ethnic groups who all had their own local language. They had to communicate in the island of Sumatra, in the island of Java. You have quite different language groups. Um, so they had to speak to each other. 
Early on, Malay emerged as a language of trade, a, ling a lingua franca, enabling people to trade together. But with the Islamization process, it also became a language of the faith, language of religion. And so you find this emerging rich corpus of literature being written in the new script, Jawi script, which is enriching the Malay language. So the, the actual study of linguistic history itself is interesting as well. Um, then along come the European powers. And what you found is that um, with the gradual uh, assertion of European control, um, then Malay continued in its important role, but in terms of its script, it was increasingly replaced by um, by Latin alphabet, and that's the situation we have today. Although you do have some um, some regions of, uh, of Southeast Asia today that continue to use Jawi, for example, in in religious contexts, in seminaries, students learn Jawi. Um, in the southern um, states of Thailand, where you have a Malay community, they still produce their newspapers in Jawi. People know the Jawi script there, but generally speaking, the those communities in Southeast Asia, in Malaya, um, in Sumatra, in Java that speak Malay, or, or Indonesian as they call it in Indonesia, they're using the Latin alphabet as well. The, the history of language itself is fascinating um, in Southeast Asia, and it is as rich and diverse as is the history of the people who, who, who use those languages. And we should mention that this Jawi script is, is this modified Arabic script, isn't it, that just gets called... Jawi, as it were, so the Javanese in Arabic is the modified Arabic script. So with the rise then of this Malay literature, these uh, Islamic sultanates with their own, let's say, their own religious personnel, their specialists, with scholars who are moving then, having been born in Southeast Asia, who are travelling to study in places like Mecca and Medina, learning impeccable Arabic, we have uh, one of the most fascinating figures, uh, I think, and, and, and uh, someone whose work you've written several really fascinating, important books about, and that's Abderauf Asinkili, who was born in 1615 and dies in 1693. And he's the, the Mufti, let's say, the, the, the main judge of the Aceh Sultanate. And the reason I, I bring him up uh, is because of the work that you've done on, on the first complete Quran commentary that Asinkili wrote in Malay. Yes, indeed. He's a very interesting man. And again, this is, this is the, um, the most fascinating part of history, isn't it? That's looking at the human, listening to the human stories. Um, Abdurraouf lived, as you said, he lived through the 1600s. He was a man of the 17th century. He, was, um, he grew up and was educated in, in Aceh. Um, he, um, at the time that he was educated, it was very interesting because this Sultanate of Aceh, which was the dominant, um, the dominant power really in the region immediately before the arrival of the Dutch, um, the Sultanate was leaning very much towards a, a form of mystical um, Islam that some Muslims considered to be verging on, on, on heresy. Um, so there was a, uh, when he was a young man doing his studies, um, the, the, the most uh, influential scholars in the Sultanate of Aceh were, 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 was a man called Shamsuddin Asumatrani. Um, and he followed a system of um, belief where 
um, it was essentially monistic. It, it was a system of belief that saw the world as the created world as one. The creator and the created world really were one, and God um, emanated. There were various emanations from God, and the created world was really an emanation from God. So ultimately, all was God, and this caused uh, some problems um, in 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 Aceh around in the 1630s when a um, a scholar was imported from India who came out to Aceh um, after the death of Shamsuddin. Um, his name was Nuruddin Araniri. He was the head religious, the spiritual head of the kingdom for seven years, only seven years. But during that period, he put a broom through the place figuratively in terms of eliminating what he saw as heresy. Um, there were book burnings, there were witch hunts, there were inquisitions, people were executed and so forth. Uh, because he said any suggestion that God and the created world is, is one is, is heresy. So um, he, 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 although he himself was, was, was Sufi, nevertheless, he wanted to affirm the place of the external study of the Sharia law as being a very central part to the life of, uh, of ordinary Muslims. Um, now, that led to tremendous social dislocation in Aceh. Meanwhile, while that, while that was going on, our hero, Abdurraouf, was off in Arabia doing what every um, you know, aspiring young scholar wanted to do, that is travelling around, studying, sitting at the feet of the great scholars of the Arabian Peninsula. And you can imagine the scene. You know, this, this is 1600. It sounds a long time ago, but it's no different to today, really, for young students who go overseas to do their PhD. He went to Arabia and he travelled right around the Arabian Peninsula to the greatest sites of learning. Uh, he sat at the feet of some of the greatest scholars and he studied Quran, he studied Hadith, he studied uh, law, he studied mysticism, tasawwuf as it's called. Uh, he studied all the Islamic sciences to prepare himself to come back to, to Aceh. And he eventually came back to Aceh. <clears throat> he was actually called back um, because Aceh was in such a, such a mess. There was so much dispute going on. So he returned to Aceh um, in 1661, and he was in, appointed by the sultan at the time, who interestingly was a female sultan. She appointed him as the head, the Sheikh al-Islam, as they call them, the, the, really the spiritual head, the, the spiritual guide of the kingdom. And he then spent the next um, 61 to 93, so that's 32 years, producing this massive output of, of writing on vast on just about every area of Islamic learning. He was an incredibly erudite and, and, and highly trained man, but he was a conciliator. So he'd been preceded by two men, one of whom had was seen by some as being an extreme Sufi verging on heresy. The other one who was wanting to clean the place up, he saw, so he thought, so executions took place. Abdur Rauf was the conciliator and he wrote, he wrote books on all aspects of the Islamic sciences and eliminated the sort of discord that characterised Aceh at the time. He was, he was a great man. And um, I, for my PhD, I looked at his, um, his commentary on the Quran. It was the earliest complete commentary on the Quran. And he, um, he produced a commentary that um, was based on a particular Arabic commentary, which is very widespread, called the Tafsir al-Jalalain. Um, it's I, the Tafsir al-Jalalain is arguably the most influential Arabic commentary uh, throughout Islamic history. Not the most complex or detailed, in fact. It's most influential because it's not, actually. 
it's quite user-friendly. And so Abdurov adapted that. And here we talk, we talk about translation. He translated us into Malay, but he followed this process of trying to preserve the form of the Arabic original so that he would respect what he considered to be the language of God, but to do so in a way that was still accessible to his students who understood Malay. And um, that commentary was produced in around 1675, and it is still published today in Indonesia and Malaysia. You can buy it in Islamic bookshelves. It's had a massive influence for you know, 350 years. So he was a, a very important um, stage on the journey of Islamization of, um, of Mal the Malay world of Southeast Asia. Um, and uh, in terms of his literary output, he was important, but he was also in, important as a, as a conciliator, as a sort of voice of moderation after a period of great dissension and dispute. And so we're getting this sense then from these various texts you've mentioned, not just the Quran, which I suppose is, of course, is, is, is a given, you know, in any Muslim environment, but also these other debates about Sufism, about Sharia, about commentaries. I mean, as you mentioned, the figures involved in the in these debates of, of mysticism, you, you, you mentioned Nuruddin Ranili, uh, who was writing against uh, the Indian who was reacting to the Sufism of an earlier figure, Hamza Fansuri. But this, these ideas, these, as you mentioned, these, so to speak, at least in Ranidi's eyes, these extreme mystical ideas of God and humankind ultimately being of the same stuff, these monistic ideas, we shouldn't think that these are somehow misunderstandings on the, this Malay fringe of the Islamic world that just didn't get things right. Because, of, the, of course, these are the teachings of Ibn al-Arabi, who'd been born in Spain, who'd written his greatest books, Al-Futahat al-Makiyah, the Meccan revelations in Mecca. And for those who supported him, he was called Ibn al-Arabi al-Sheikh al-Akbar, the greatest master. But, of course, those who didn't like him, including then Raniri down in Southeast Asia, he was... Al Sheikh Al Akfar, the 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 leader of the the infidels, wasn't he? So these debates then are not an issue of let's say misunderstandings on the fringes. These are sort of debates happening on let's say the far edge of the Islamic world that actually show real involvement with with the big theological questions, the hot theological debates that are going on in in Mecca, in Islamic Spain. Um, at least in the medieval period, or indeed in, in places like Cairo. And yet, is which I'm building up to, and yet there's often a perspective among scholars, among many Southeast Asian Muslims themselves, that Southeast Asia developed its own regional distinctive form of Islam. So how should we understand then this interplay between, let's say, these Arabic text these debates that are going on in Murcia, in Spain, in Cairo, in Mecca, in Malacca, in Aceh, but also this idea of a very distinctive Malay or Southeast Asian Islam. Mm. You know, um, when you look at the history of Southeast Asian Islam and the history of Islam in other other regions um, as well, and uh, you, you, you've done yourself extensively. Um, what strikes me about Southeast Asia is that um, 
really the 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 concept of transmission we we used the term translation earlier or transmission uh, the the debates from other regions also happened in southeast asia so it's not as if southeast asia was was cooking up these sort of differences that weren't appearing anywhere else and you you, you said it well you talked about the influence of ibn al-arabi um, the, the the crucial role of um, at least the reality of the Islamic world per se being incredibly diverse in so many ways, and yet the same kinds of dissensions and debates and discussions and affirmations popping up like mushrooms all over the Islamic world. So you have diversity, but you have unity. Um, now, of course, there are distinctives about Southeast Asian Islam, <coughs> excuse me, Islam in certain kinds of ways, um, and, and they're, they're quite interesting. I wouldn't I wouldn't say there is a distinctive Southeast Asian form of Islam. I would say, well, there are certain distinctive features about some forms of Southeast Asian Islam. Um, some years ago, the um, very prominent um, American uh, anthropologist Clifford Geertz, he drew a distinction in, in his study of Javanese Islam, which is quite useful when you think of Islam generally. He, he sort of distinguished the uh, class of traditional rulers, and then he distinguished a class of sort of strict orthodox, I suppose, although I don't like that term that much, but um, Islamic scholars or people who followed the rules in a sense. And then the third group, he called them abangans in the case of Java, were the people, the kinds of practices that the masses developed um, in Java. And they're very interesting to look at. What they, what they often show is the remnants of pre-Islamic belief. Uh, it's quite interesting. Um, for example, in, in Java um, and in West Java, East Java, different parts of Java, you, you will find that Sunni Muslims um, who are out in the rural areas will go to mosque. They will perform their Friday prayers, but then they will go and put out an offering to the goddess of the rice field, Dewi Sri. Um, so there's that in, interesting, uh, you know, collocation going on. Uh, you find... Uh, other different interesting practices, the the use, for example, of the traditional art form in in the Malay world, the the wayang form of wayang, which can be kind of that can be shadow puppets, or it can be um, actual puppets, doll type puppets used to tell the great Islamic stories. We talked about the great Islamic epic stories before, and sometimes you'll find performances of those Islamic stories originating in Persia or in the Middle East, but being told by Malays using these local art forms. Fascinating, really. Um, in Southeast Asia, um, of course, when Muslims are called to prayer, uh, there will be the traditional Islamic call to prayer, but that's often preceded by the beating of a, a, a local Malay drum called the baduk, and the drum beat happens, and it's saying to people, "Come to prayer, come to prayer," and then that's followed by 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 the traditional call to prayer. So yeah, there are these distinctive features that take place. Um, visitation of tombs. Um, we we talked about my my scholar Abd Rauf. His tomb is a site of great pilgrimage in. Um, in, in North Aceh. And um, so that visitation of saints' tombs is, a, is something which is universal throughout the Islamic world. But of course, in Southeast Asia, the tombs may have distinctive features. Um, there are several in East Java that are quite fascinating. Um, even practice of circumcision of males in many parts of the Muslim world, that it might happen around seven or eight years of age. In Southeast Asia, it tends to happen at the time of puberty. Um, 
so yeah, there are the distinctive features, but um, I think uh, at the same time we need to recognise that um, the distinctives don't mean that Southeast Asian Islam is somewhere out there on the edge, quite different. Southeast Asian Islam contributes to the to the sort of vast diversity of of the world of Islam with lots of transmission going on in all kinds of ways, including including debates, including polemics. You mentioned the polemics brings to mind whether not only those 17th century polemics then that we've discussed, but in many ways more recent ones among Muslims in Southeast Asia themselves about such practices that you've mentioned, such as tomb visitation, which across so many parts of the, the Muslim world now, the visitation of shrines to whether to Sufis or indeed to to scholars. It happens that Abdul Rauf, who you've mentioned, was both a Sufi and a scholar, as so many, uh, so many leading Muslims were before recent decades. So after these recent decades, and I've mentioned in which these local and regional forms of Islam have in many cases been marginalized by promoters of global or even political Islam, including in Southeast Asia. Can you tell us what is the state of Islam in Southeast Asia today? Yes, well, um, again, um, many of the same trends that we see elsewhere have taken place in Southeast Asia. I mean, the fact is that since the 1970s, uh, there has been a noticeable, often discussed, resurgence of Islamic identity, which has taken various forms. Um, and I mean, I, I noticed it in my own experience. For example, I was based in Indonesia in the in the late in the late 1980s, and um, at that time, in terms of outward symbolism, very few women, very few Muslim women, wore head covering. Today, you go to Indonesia, and it's very widespread that women are wearing head covering. It doesn't mean that they're all literalists or fundamentalists, but th there are all sorts of reasons why women are doing so. That's one form of, of outward symbolism uh, that's taking place. Um, Islam, when you look at Islamic history, um, uh, it's always seemed to me that there's been a typical cycle that takes place both globally and locally. And that is a, a period of establishment and consolidation, which is followed by some kind of different types of divergence and when the divergence reaches a certain point, combined with other events, then a period process of reform takes place. And across the Islamic world, you know, we're going through a pro process of reform at the moment. Uh, the resurgence since the 1970s has brought about reform. Some of it, uh, some of it, sort of open-minded. Some of it quite closed-minded. Um, uh, many traditional practices which were involved this kind of divergence have been under attack. Um, for example, I mean, there are some Islamic societies in Southeast Asia that are matrilineal, such as the Minangkabau Society in West Java, where um, while the men are responsible for religious and political matters, uh, the women, um, they're, they're responsible for transmitting the property, the family name, it passes down from mother to daughter. Or among a very interesting Chum group of Muslims in Vietnam, they are also matrilineal. And um, they, they, additionally, they have other practices, um, such as they don't pray five times a day, they get their leaders to do it for them. Or they might only go to go to mosque, um, they might only pray once on, on a Friday. So these kinds of traditional practices have been subjected to um, critique, to scrutiny, and sometimes to attack throughout 
throughout different Southeast Asia. In Malaysia, for example, there's a, there's a department of the Malaysian government um, which has one of its campaigns to identify deviationist groups. And so they, are, they decide that such and such a person or such and such a group is deviating from the accepted norm. And that tends to be as defined by their interpretation of Sharia law. And they're then prescribed or imprisoned or whatever. Um, so this kind of, this kind of um, reform, some of it quite strict and literalist, um, has been a feature of Southeast Asia over the last 50 years. Is it mainstream? Well, no, it's not. It's perhaps more mainstream in, in Malaysia than in Indonesia. Um, but wherever you go, you do find a push to reform, to get back to what some Muslims consider to be the pure, true form of Islam, which tends to be very book-based, very law-based, and its critics say, very, very Arabized. Um, so um, the, the, the response is, we're being Arabized, can't we have our own Islam? So those tensions are taking place in a very interesting kind of way. Well, as you've shown us, Peter, these are perhaps not new tensions, although they seem often new to us in our, in our own time. Well, I'm very grateful to you, Professor Peter Riddell, for taking us beyond our own time then on a tour d'horizon, one might say, from 1021 to uh, 2021 of the wide horizons then of South Asian, Southeast Asian Islam. Thank you so much for joining us in first Chamber. Thank you, Niall. I enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Da 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 da